you know, one of the most tense moments in world history was in the early 60s. And fall air blew across the Caribbean Ocean, and there was a standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union through Cuba. Each side had their fingers on their nuclear buttons. Years later, there was a conference of all the political players who were involved in that crisis, and they all shuddered at how serious each side was indeed willing to crisscross their nuclear weapons onto each other. The world within itself possesses an unthinkable, horrific capacity to destroy. In fact, in 1945, the United States launched and landed the first atomic bomb. They codenamed it Little Boy on the heavily populated Japanese city called Hiroshima. Immediately, 70,000 men, women, and children were killed. That many more would later die from radiation. The Japanese reasoned that the United States put all of our ammunition into one bomb. We certainly couldn't have anything left. So they continued to fight. So we loaded together another atomic bomb. This one bigger than the last, codenamed Fat Man. They dropped it on Nagasaki, less populated but a bigger bomb. 40,000 people immediately killed. That many more men, women, and children would subsequently die from radiation. Today, imagine all the nations that have nuclear capacities. And all the nations that have somebody with their finger on the trigger, and even volatile countries are rushing to uh, navigate their own nuclear arsenal. The world possesses within itself an unthinkable power to destroy. Yet all of the world's accumulated power is less than a child's water pistol compared to another power, a greater power, the power that we are here to celebrate. This is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The world's power is the complete antithesis of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The world's power accumulates itself and manifests itself by destroying and maiming. But the resurrection power of Jesus Christ manifests itself by restoring and healing. The world's power instills fear and terror, but the resurrection power of Jesus Christ instills peace and hope. The world's power is limited to the discretion of a few leaders and kings and presidents and dictators. But the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is available to any man, woman, boy, or girl who will dare to place their faith in Jesus Christ for their daily needs and their daily struggles. So if you have your Bibles, open it with me to John chapter 20, and let's look at the resurrection power of Jesus Christ through the conversations that Jesus had right out of the tomb, right out of the grave. Time and time again, in fact, just this past week, I've witnessed families gather around the casket of their loved one, tears streamed, shoulders convulsed, yet their sorrow was not like the rest of the world who grieved without hope. It was not goodbye, but because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, it was only until then. Because one day they knew they would see their loved one again. As God promises us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 through 55, when the perishable puts on imperishable, 
and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass that saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I've been in the ministry for some time now, and many, many times I've sat across from couples whose marriage was wrecked by uh, infidelity or anger or abuse and a lack of trust. Not even the sun, it seemed, could have thawed the tension that would be in the room when these two couples, or when these couples sit in front of me. But the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can make all things new. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will remove from you, God says, the heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my law within you, and I will cause you to follow my ways. Over the years, I've had close friends who were just inches from losing their life to chemical dependency and addictions. And yet I've seen this testimony time and time again. As David proclaimed in Psalm 40, he drew me up out of the pit of destruction and he put a new song in my mouth, not a song of bondage, but a song of freedom, a song of praise to our God. And many will see and many will fear. This past year, we saw many hurricanes, many tragedies, many earthquakes, a great deal of loss of life. It's as if creation itself is crying out for restoration. As we read in Romans 8:22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And one day, even creation will experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ making all things new. As Isaiah writes, for behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and there shall be no more heard of weeping or cries of distress. You just look at the newspaper today, and you see fear and terror and death. There's wars, there's rumors of war, there's chaos that's unrestrained, there's governmental corruption, there's abuse of power, there's the oppression of, of, of the poor, there's terrorism, there's poverty, disease, there's starvation. But regardless of these dismal headlines, hope remains because Christ is risen. And one day Jesus, through his resurrection power, will establish a new culture, as we read in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the fatted calf will, and the lion shall lie down together. And the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze together. And their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like, and, and, the, and, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the snake's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy on all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ will make all things new. Nothing will escape the spreading light of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. And when Jesus said all things, he meant just that, all things. As we read in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things God works together for the good to those who love him. Again, when he says all things, he means all things. As we read in Ecclesiastes, 
Everything is made beautiful in its time. And when we read everything, God means everything, nothing, all things, everything is included in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, making everything new and beautiful and whole and worthwhile. How far can we go with those two words, all things? We can go all the way. All things means all things. Nothing is excluded from all things. All things means divorce. All things means death. All things means broken dreams. All things means disease. All things means heartache. All things means persecution. All things means suffering. God promises us through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, He will make all things new. All things means that burden that you came in here with. All things means that thing in your life you thought, you know what, if, this, if just this were different, then, then maybe I could have joy. If only this never happened, then maybe I could have peace and hope. If only these circumstances shifted, then maybe I could really believe that there's a God. But God promises, through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, He will make all things new, all things beautiful in its time. God doesn't say that all things are beautiful. There are some things that are very ugly. There are some things that break the heart of God that have occurred in our lives. There are some things that have touched our lives and affected our lives that are so inconsistent with the will of God and the Word of God, and it has caused incredible pain and suffering. God doesn't say all things are beautiful. God says, I will make all things beautiful in its time. There's nothing beautiful about a lump of coal, but in its time, it becomes a diamond. There's nothing beautiful about a caterpillar, but in its time, it becomes a butterfly. And there may be nothing beautiful about the sorrow and the suffering and the death that has affected your life, but God says, in its time, I will make it beautiful through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. So let's look at John chapter 20. At these initial words out of the tomb that promises all things will be beautiful in your life. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And there's a theme here. Three or four times in this short passage we see Mary wept. Mary's weeping. She's weeping. She's crying. Has heartache ever touched your life to the extent that you just cried uncontrollably? I, tr- I try not to cry. I remember when my, when my good friend, uh, founding member of this church, uh, took his life. It was a tragedy that I could not wrap my mind around. One of my greatest encouragers in life was gone through tragedy. Addiction got the best of him one night. And I found myself uncontrollably crying. And this is Mary. Jesus, the author of life, gave up his life, and she could not wrap her heart around it. She could not wrap her mind around it. And she would weep uncontrollably. Verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she looked into the tomb. And as she saw two angels in white sitting with the body where Jesus had lain, sitting where the body had lain, 
And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she didn't know who it was. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I believe that Jesus here is being winsome. I believe that he's being playful. I believe he's being a best friend. I believe he's being a family member. He conquered death. She's weeping. And he says, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Because if, you, if you're seeking me, there's no reason to weep because I've conquered death. And so the same question applies to us today. Why are we weeping? Why do we have sorrow? Why do we have depression? Why are we discouraged? Why do we have fear? Why are we timid? Why are we walking around with our heads downcast and our hearts sorrowful? Jesus is risen. Now, if you're seeking something other than Christ, there's reason to weep. If you're seeking satisfaction in relationships, well, there's reason to weep. If you're seeking satisfaction in addiction, well, there's reason to weep. If you're seeking satisfaction in in, in materialism, there's reason to weep. If you're seeking hope through Muhammad, there's reason to weep because he's still dead. If you're seeking hope through Confucius, there's reason to weep because he's still dead. And if you're seeking hope through Buddha, there's reason to weep because he's still dead. And if you're seeking hope through our government, well, there's reason to weep because we'll just read the newspapers. But... If you're seeking Jesus, he says to us, why are you weeping? I've conquered death. I've conquered death so I can conquer your sorrows and struggles and setbacks and failures. And we have so much hope here because he says, why are you weeping? It's a rhetorical question. Whom are you seeking? It's a rhetorical question. Because if you're seeking me, I've conquered the grave and there's no reason to weep. And perhaps you've been seeking other things in this world. My prayer for you is that you will shift the trajectory of your heart's adoration and passion from anything in this world to the King of Kings who conquered the grave and rose from the grave. Turn your heart towards him. Did you know that you and I are made to worship? We are worshipers. I had a border collie. That dog was made to catch frisbees. If it didn't have sheep to herd, it would herd kids. That dog was made to herd. I now have a German shepherd. That dog is made to patrol. It's just always circling, looking for something to bark at, just looking to patrol. You have an instinct. You have a nature. You are made to worship. And did you know that you can never turn your worshiper off? You're not, yeah, I don't feel like worshiping God. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like living in righteousness. I don't feel like seeking God. So I'm just going to turn my worshiper off. You never, ever, 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 ever turn your worshiper off. You just rechannel your worship to something else. And you begin worshiping your family, or you begin worshiping your careers, or you begin worshiping the world, or lust, or addiction, or people's approval of you. The list goes on and on and on. You never turn your worshiper off. You don't have that capacity. I don't have that capacity. We just redirect our worship from the living water to sewer water. From eternal things to things that are perishing. And our hearts grow sick and cold. Whom are you seeking? If it's Jesus Christ, there's no reason to weep Because he will give your heart peace and joy and move the mountains that block your path. And I love this. Jesus then says, Mary. He knows her name. He says, Mary. And in the same way, he's saying, why are you weeping? I've conquered death. 
and He calls you by name. Did you know that the Psalms tell us in Psalm 139 that when you closed your eyes last night and you finally fell asleep, God saw it. He he took attention to it. That's right. That's how intimately acquainted God is with all of your ways. He doesn't only know your name. He knows when you fell asleep. Psalm 139. He knows when you rise up. When you were in your mother's womb, God saw your, your substance being formed and knit together. That's beautiful, isn't it? Jesus said that God knows how many hairs are on your head. He doesn't just have them counted. He has them numbered. He doesn't just know there's 2,000 hairs, whatever it is. He knows when hair number 173 fell out. He has them numbered. That's how intimately acquainted He is with you in all of your ways. Did you know there are five, six, an estimated, I'm sure nobody's actually counted this. Did you know there are five sextillion grains of sand on all the beaches on the world? Five sextillion. It's an unthinkable number. It's a five with 21 zeros behind it. Did you know that there are one septillion stars in the universe? That's an unthinkable number. It's a one with a 24 zeros behind it. But did you know that there are more atoms in your body than there are grains of sand on the beach and stars in the universe combined? There are five octillion atoms in your body. That's a five with 27 zeros behind it. No wonder the psalmist cried out, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And God not only has each of your hairs numbered, God has each of your atoms numbered. He knows your name. He knows you. He knows what you're going through. The psalmist tells us that he counts our tears. He collects them. He writes them in his scroll. He doesn't, meet, he doesn't miss one of them. But not only that, he matches them tear for tear. He knows that what you're going through will work together for the good, for His glory, for the deepest desires of your heart, and for the hope of the world, but He loves you so much that He matches your tears, tear for tear. That's how intimately acquainted He is with all of your ways. But not only is God intimately acquainted with you, not only does He know your name and have the hairs on your head numbered and have the atoms in your body numbered, and not only is He walking through every detail of your life, He loves you with this intimate love, but not only that, He loves you with an infinite love. It's intimate. He has your atoms counted, but it's infinite. We read in Scripture in a few places, as, the, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for us. When I was a kid, my brother and I shared a room, and we had these two twin beds, and I can remember laying in the twin beds, and we were trying to wrap our mind around how big Jesus was. And we said, Jesus is so big that if He were laying in this twin bed, His feet, his feet would hang off the edge. <laughs> it's true. We were theologians. That's absolutely true. <laughs> But we would go on and try to stretch our imagination. No, 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 no. He's so big, he couldn't even fit in this room. No, 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 no. He's so big, he couldn't even fit in this house. Now, we were severely underestimating the enormity of God and His love. But we were on the right track by trying to understand His love by attaching a metaphor to it. Because God says, you want to wrap your mind around my love or you want to give it a shot? As high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is my love for you. 
So let's just take a moment and try to wrap our mind around this love. The sun, for example, is 93 million miles from the earth. Oh gosh, recently we went to Six Flags and we rode the ride, I forget what it's called, but it's the ride that that, that swings around and it goes up really, really, really high. Oh my gosh, the thing is terrifying. I just wanted to get down quickly. And I'm thinking, this is way up there. On one of the rides, I forget which one it was, but I aged like five years on that ride (laughs) immediately. Oh, I hate heights. But God says to really wrap your mind around my love, let's explore the heights. Let's go higher than the Six Flags rides. And let's go even higher. The sun, for example, is 93 million miles from the earth. 93 million miles. So, let's get into 747 jet. Let's go 600 miles an hour. At an estimated 17 years, we would finally reach the sun. That's a long way away. 600 miles an hour, traveling for 17 years, we would finally reach the sun. But let's pick up the speed a little bit. Let's push the throttle down. Now we're going the speed of light. 186,000 miles per second. Think about that. 186,000 miles per second. If we traveled this fast for 5,000 years... Imagine it, 186,000 miles per second for 5,000 years, we would finally reach a red star called V.Y. Canis Majoris. Now, our sun is so big that you could fit one million of our Earths inside our sun, but this star is so big, 5,000 light years away, that you could fit one million of our stars inside, one million of our suns inside this particular star. But let's keep traveling. So we're still going 186,000 miles per second. And then let's span the entire breadth of our Milky Way galaxy. At 186,000 miles per second, let's travel for 100,000 years. Think of that. And we'll finally cross from one side of our Milky Way galaxy to the other. Carl Sagan said, and if we could peer into the universe, we see that although there's a hundred billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy, there are more galaxies in the universe than there are stars in our Milky Way. So let's explore this universe. If we were to travel 156 billion years, just think of that number. If we were to be flying 186,000 miles per second, For 156 billion years, we would finally reach one side of the universe to the other, but actually we would never reach from one side of the universe to the other, because the universe itself is expanding faster than the speed of light. Scriptures tell us that, what science and astronomers are just now figuring out. We read in Isaiah 700 BC that God stretches the skies out like like a scroll. And even if we could travel for 156 billion years at 186,000 miles per second, we can never reach the end of our universe because it is expanding faster than the speed of light. Why did God create the universe so enormously? Astronomers are now telling us that it's probable that our universe, as unthinkable as it is, is just one of millions, unthinkable, untold, infinite number of universes. Why did God make it so big, so high? Because God said, when you try to wrap your mind around my love for you, it's as high as the heavens are, as high as the heavens are above the earth. 
And yet, God left that, and he came to this earth. He stepped out of the heavenlies, and he came to earth. And the creation saw their creator, and they despised him, they rejected him, they hated him, they killed him. But that's exactly why he came, so that we would know the distance he was willing to travel for us, the price on the cross that he was willing to pay for us, the sin that he was willing to endure and forgive of us, and the grace and mercy that he is willing to extend to us, and the relationship with himself that he is willing to have with us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, God loves you. And it all comes down to the cross. The creator of all things, the one through whom all things were created, the one for whom all things are created, the one by whom all things are held together, came to this earth and he died on a cross for you to say, this is how much I love you. But... Before you can understand that Jesus died on the cross for you, you have to allow yourself to understand that he died on the cross instead of you. Think of that. If I could give you one gift, it would be for you to understand that Jesus didn't just die for you because he loves you. Jesus died instead of you because he loves you. Theologically, this is called substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. He paid the price of sin and death so that you and I can go free. He didn't just die for you. He died instead of you. He suffered through the cross on your behalf so that you would not have to pay for your sins, being separated from him forever and eternity. He's like, hold on a second. That's not popular these days. You're not supposed to talk about these days. God wouldn't send anybody to hell. He doesn't. He tells his angels to bind them hand and foot and throw them into outer darkness there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you say, but how could a loving God possibly send somebody to hell? How could a loving God not? We can love so much that we hate. As we mentioned in our Good Friday service, I hate it when I hear that a child is molested. I hate that. I hate it when I hear that somebody is raped. I hate it. I hate it when I hear that somebody died needlessly. I hate that. I hate it when I hear that a disabled child is picked on and bullied at school and they go home and they take their own lives. I hate that. I hate that because I have love in my heart. And if you don't hate those things, then I question whether or not you have love in your heart. God's love is so holy, so pure, so perfect that God hates sin. And he hates sin so much that he attached a penalty to it. The wages of sin is death. God hates sin so much he attached a penalty. The wages of sin is death. And he doesn't just let that one slide because he is so loving. But God is so loving that he paid the price of death for everybody who committed any sin. Think about that. Jesus didn't just die for you, he died instead of you. Because he's so loving, he hates sin, and he attached a penalty to sin. The wages of sin is death, but he's so loving, he loves the child molester. He loves the rapist. He loves those bullies. He loves that person who committed those acts of violence. He loves them. 
But he doesn't just let those sins slide. He loves them so much that he came from heaven to earth and on a cross, and he paid the price with his own life through his own suffering. The cross is something Jesus did for you. But not only that, the cross is something that Jesus did instead of you. And this is called substitutionary atonement, theologically. From Genesis to Revelation, it is woven throughout the pages of Scripture. In fact, it is the story from Genesis through Revelation. It is the story. And God loves you so much, He paid for your sins. And not only that, the resurrection power says, I am with you and I love you and I'm working all things together for the good. And the resurrection power of Jesus Christ also says, I have a purpose for you. I have passion for you to live out. And we go on reading in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples for fear of the Jews, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them. He just slipped through the locked doors. He passed through it. And he said to them, peace be unto you. And some of you, like the disciples, are living with broken dreams, and you're living behind locked doors, and you're living in fear, and you're living in timidity. And Jesus is walking into your life right now, and he's saying, have peace. I've conquered the grave. And in verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And with this, watch this, a foreshadowing of Pentecost, which would happen in a matter of days. Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus is sending us. And then he breathes on us through his Holy Spirit. And the moment we trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, we receive the Holy Spirit, and we're then given a new purpose and a new passion, and it goes so far beyond our small little worlds. We are not the center of the universe. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And if you had water and there were people around you that were dying of thirst, it would be unkind, it would be uncompassionate for you not to share that water with them. If you had an ample supply of food and there were people all around you who were dying of starvation, it would be unkind of you not to share that food with them. If there was a children's ward where children are dying of a deadly epidemic and you had the serum, it would be unthinkable for you to withhold that to, your, with your, to yourselves. And you have a relationship with Christ, the living water. And when you seek Christ, all things are made new. The mountains in your, in, in your path begin to crumble and you're filled with boldness. And when you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never done that before, your sins are immediately forgiven, you're heaven-bound, you're a child of God, and now you have a responsibility to everyone everywhere. You don't work where you work just to make a buck. You don't live where you live just to sleep. You're not surrounded by your friends and family on accident. You don't have the enemies in your life on accident. It's all on divine appointment because you and I are to let our light shine. We're to share the love of Christ. We're to share this truth that sets people free and that saves souls. So through the resurrection power, Jesus says, I love you. And through the resurrection power, Jesus says, I have a purpose for you. Tell everyone everywhere about me and about eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And through the resurrection power, we have conviction that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. We read another appearance between Jesus and his disciples in verse 26. Eight days later. 
the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. This is before the ascension, and Jesus is making these appearances. And he appeared ultimately before his ascension into heaven on the day of Pentecost to 500 eyewitnesses. And Thomas was with them, and all the doors were locked. And Jesus stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, who was struggling with doubting, and we give Thomas a hard time about that, but uh, he actually uh, ended up being a missionary to India where he lost his life. I stood on the coast where he started a church. There's many churches there, even today, 2,000 years later. And we do have a great deal of respect for guys who doubted and then through the overwhelming weight of the evidence gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Guys like C.S. Lewis, guys like uh, um, Lee Strobel, guys like Josh McDowell, very intelligent atheist who set out to disprove Christianity by disproving the resurrection. And in their evidence they realized the weight of the evidence is so overwhelming. This is true. Jesus stood before uh, first century Lee Strobel or C.S. Lewis, Thomas, and he said... Put your finger and see my hands and put out your hand, the place in my side. See the scars? This is how much I love you. I conquered the grave. It's me. And we have an incredible weight of evidence today to place our faith in Jesus Christ. For example, when they put Jesus in a tomb, they put a Roman seal over the tomb, and yet the Roman seal was broken. Who broke it? As we saw in the video, it was either somebody very bold or it was God. And it wasn't the disciples. They were not bold. Each of them ran for their lives. They denied. They abandoned. They betrayed. They had no more confidence in their Messiah on the eve of the crucifixion. They were, as we've seen, they were hiding behind locked doors in fear. It wasn't the disciples that broke the seal. And on top of that, they stationed Roman guards. Who would go against these Roman guards and break a Roman seal? If the Roman guards fell asleep on duty so somebody could steal the the body away, they would be executed. They were not going to fall asleep. If somebody broke the Roman seal, they were going to be executed. It wasn't the followers of Christ. It wasn't the disciples. They were terrified. So where was the body? Rome went to incredible lengths, incredible expenses, persecuting the church to try to stamp out this movement of Christianity. Why didn't they just go get the body out of the grave, put it in a wheelbarrow, cart it through Jerusalem, and say, here's your Messiah? Because there was no body. The body had gone. It was not there. Where was it? Who broke the seal? What happened to the Roman guards? And then what was the what was the purpose of the incredible transformation in the heart of the disciples? They were cursing that they even knew Jesus. They were denying him that bitterly. They were abandoned. Like we said, they're hiding for their lives behind locked doors. And then, all of a sudden, within a matter of days, they're standing and boldly proclaiming in the middle of Jerusalem, He's risen! He's risen! We've seen Him with our own eyes! What could have created that transformation other than an actual resurrection? And on top of that, I think the overwhelming weight that absolutely did me in so that I had to say, I am following you, Jesus, with my whole life, is the reality of the messianic prophecies written hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus was ever born, and yet in such detail and such specificity about his life, his birth, how he was raised, his personality, his mannerisms, how he died, who was around him when he died. I mean, read Psalm 22, it will put goosebumps on the back of your neck. Read Isaiah 53, it will put goosebumps on the back of your neck. The Messianic prophecies written hundreds of years before Christ was born alone are overwhelming weight enough for us to attest that Jesus is who he said he was, and that's the Savior of all. And then time and time again, when I invite somebody to bow their heads and to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, 
I can't explain how many times I've seen tears fall and their hearts melted and their lives transformed. And they're new, they're different, they, they love their enemies, they have freedom over addiction, they're transformed, they have joy where they didn't have it. Time and time again, I've seen lives that were transformed through the risen Savior who invaded their heart the moment they placed their faith in Christ. And I could testify how I know that He's real because time and time again, He's delivered me, He's provided for me. There's a great missionary who said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's support. I can attest that is the truth. God is faithful. He's with me. He's never abandoned me. And especially in my times of brokenness, when I cry out to Him without fail, He's picked me up. He's resuscitated me. He's empowered me. He's with me. And He's with you. He's our risen Savior. The resurrection declares, why are you weeping? Jesus calls you by name. I love you, and I want to make all things new in your life. The resurrection declares, I have a purpose for you that's infinitely more than what you've been living for. The disciples wanted to follow Jesus into an earthly kingdom, but Jesus had in mind an eternal kingdom of souls for His glory, not their own. Follow Christ with all of your heart. Tell everyone everywhere what Jesus has done in your heart. Because if you're truly saved, if He's truly cleansed you, if He's truly forgiven you, and you're the child of God, and you're heaven-bound, how can you keep it to yourself? How can you sell out for some blue light special that this world has to offer? How can you not roll up your sleeves and pick up your cross and count the costs and follow Christ? How can you not build up and beautify the church that Jesus died to create? The resurrection declares this is the truth. Look. Look at the nail scars. Look at the scar in my side. This is the truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. How are you planning on getting to the Father? How are you planning on getting to heaven? You know, every religion in the world can be placed in this category, and we'll call it the doctrine of human achievement. It's spelled D-O, things you do. The world calls this religion. Do this, do this, do this, and hopefully one day you'll achieve a heaven. Jesus had nothing to do with this. You say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Yeah, exactly. Nobody kept even one of them. Nobody. Moses, Elijah, David, nobody. Not even one of the Ten Commandments. You say, but I haven't killed anybody. Jesus, in Matthew 5, revealed the heart of the Ten Commandments. It's not just about what you do, it's about your heart. Jesus said, if you've been angry without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. You say, but I haven't committed adultery. Again, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you so much as lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. None of us have been able to keep even one of the Ten Commandments. How are you trying to get to heaven? The doctrine of human achievement, things you do upholding the good Ten Commandments by being basically a good person. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is separated from every other religion in the world because it's not about the doctrine of human achievement. It's about the doctrine of divine accomplishment. It's not based upon what we do to try to climb a ladder to get to God. It's about Jesus coming down from heaven rung by rung on the ladder and then stretching out on a cross and paying for our sins. And when we place our faith in Christ by transferring our heart's confidence from ourselves, good or bad, to the completed and sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross, at that moment, the Holy Spirit invades our heart and begins the process of making all things new in our life. 
filling us with a purpose and passion and the assurance that He's risen so that we tell everyone everywhere. Would you stand with me, please? With your, with your heads bowed, I wonder how many of you would say, yes, I am heaven bound. I know that. Raise your hand as a testimony to that. Okay, thank you. And I wonder how many of you would say, you know what, I think maybe I've been climbing this ladder of human achievement, but I want to place my faith in Jesus Christ to know that I have eternal life. I would like to pray for you. Raise your hand high, please. Okay, thank you. Anybody else? Just raise your hand high. I want to include you in this prayer. Okay, God bless you guys. God bless y'all. This is going to be a transformational moment for you because we're all going to pray with you together to dismount the ladder in the category of the doctrine of human achievement and place your faith in the cross within the doctrine of divine accomplishment. How do we do that? The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 verse 13, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not just the words, it's your heart. Like Jesus was saying in Matthew 5, it's all about the heart. It's your heart meaning these words. You transfer your confidence from yourself, good or bad. The good is false religion and pridefulness, and it falls very short. Or the bad, the very things that Jesus came to die for. Think of the worst thing in your life that you've done. What is it? The most embarrassing thing you've done. What is that? Jesus died for that sin on the cross. Jesus became that sin and died for that sin on the cross. So that you just place your faith in Christ's complete and sufficient work for you on the cross. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So let's pray together with an audible voice and boldly. Jesus, I know that I've sinned. Jesus, I know that I've sinned. But I believe you paid for my sins on the cross. So I'm dismounting the doctrine of human achievement. And I'm I'm not going to place confidence in myself, good or bad, but I will trust in what you've done for me on the cross. Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, be my Savior. I'm a lost sheep who needs a shepherd. I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. I believe you died for my sins and conquered death. So come into my life. And make me a new person. And for you followers of Christ, you've been Christians before this morning. I just want to remind you, God loves you. Jesus knows your name. He still has your hairs numbered. He still has your atoms counted. He's still meeting your tears with His, tear for tear. He's with you. And as we read in Romans 8, 31 through 39... If God is with us, who can be against us? If God didn't spare His own Son when we were living in enmity and tension with Him, how will He not freely give us all things that were His children? God is with you. God is for you. God loves you. God's carrying you. Jesus has risen. So let's hope because the resurrection power can move the mountains in our life. The resurrection power can allow us to walk in freedom. You don't have to go back into addiction. You don't have to live in lust. You don't have to live in the ungodly relationship. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live for the things the world lives for. You don't have to place your hope in Washington. You have a risen Savior. 
And through the resurrection power, He can make all things new. He can move the mountains. He can give you peace in the midst of the chaos, peace in the midst of the storm. Call out to Him and trust in Him. Why are you weeping? He is risen. Who are you seeking? If we're seeking Jesus Christ, there is no reason to weep. There's only reason to rejoice. He's conquered the grave. He's blessed us time and time again. Let's look forward to Him doing it again. Your current chaos, your current trial, your current tribulation is a testimony in the making. You can't have a battle, you can't have a victory without a battle. And if you're in the midst of a battle, it's because God has singled you out for a victory. The greater the battle, the greater the victory, the greater the rejoicing. So let's stop weeping and let's start rejoicing. He's done it before, He's going to do it again. God is not like men where He can lie. He is our Savior. He's going to move the mountains in our life. So let's worship Him in response to that. And Cassidy is going to close us out with this worship song. Let's celebrate at the top of our lungs. And when we're done, we've got a luncheon plan, an Easter egg hunt, bounce house. But please get your kids quickly. Let me pray for you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name that weeping hearts and weeping eyes and weeping souls would leave rejoicing for what you've done on the cross through the resurrection power and through what you are yet to do in our lives, through the testimony that is in process, for the testimony that's on the way. We look forward to tomorrow. We don't fear tomorrow. We look forward to tomorrow. We don't grieve with the rest of the world with no hope. We grieve knowing that hope will be sight and your promises will come into fruition and we will be rejoicing in a brand new morning. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.